Good morning. It's Friday, October 9th, 2015. This is Tech Talk Today, episode 217. And I really just can't believe that number. My name is Chris, and we have some actually interesting news to get into today. So let's get into it right now. Time-appropriate greetings, Mumbleroom. Greetings. Hello. Greetings. Hello. Hi there. So guess what? Uh, your friends and mine over at LastPass just got a big payday because Log Me In just acquired LastPass to build one platform to rule them all. That's according to the next web. But yeah, the rumors are true. Uh, the remote computing company Log Me In announced today that it has agreed to acquire password management service LastPass for $125 million in cash that's set to close in the coming weeks. Uh, once it clinches the deal, LogMeIn will merge LastPass services with the team's password management features of Millennium, I guess is how you say it, the service it acquired last September. And we, as we all are really familiar with is when you take uh, three things, one company with two different products is purchased separately and then have that third company merge those two products together, you always get really, really great results. Uh, so anyways... I don't really have much more to add to this story. This seems well, like a bad sign. What could sign. go wrong? Yeah. What do you think, Spazzy? Is this uh, you getting a waff of fail from this? Or are you concerned? Uh, well, as a LastPass user, yeah, I'd be kind of concerned just to see what the privacy policies are now going to be and how stuff's going to change once they get acquired. Ah, uh, yeah. I have to tell you, this is uh, this is seeming like I don't know what it is about Log Me In that gives me the heebie-jeebies for some reason, um, but it's giving me the heebie-jeebies. And uh, the password stuff is, well, I mean, this is what everybody, this is why everybody, everybody always says you should use KeyPass, right? This is what the, one of the arguments is, is because, you know, you don't want to be tied to a service. And, you know, I think we're, I think often where we get caught up in the debate about having your data locked up into a service or using Facebook to log you into Patreon or in all the different ways you can use third-party services to make your life a little bit easier, we always talk about the, what if it goes away? What if they shut down one day? You know, this is a common argument you'll hear us make. What if, what if that back-end service were to shut down and then you couldn't use the product anymore? That's not actually really what's most likely to happen. This is what's most likely to happen. They get sold. They get sold to a company that you don't like, a company you don't agree with, and things happen that they wouldn't have happened if they hadn't been sold. And that's really the problem with depending on third-party services. So, you know, I'm at the uh, LogMeIn website right now. Uh, they say uh, they have 300 million devices that in the LogMeIn cloud since 2003. Uh, I uh, I don't know. LogMeIn International. In International. Let's see here. Got a video about them. How about that? Oh, it's already awful. Oh, no. LogMeIn is trying to solve the problem of how do you get people to connect with each other and the world around them in a way that's safe, simple, and secure. We have a, a, a motto in the products team that we try to make the complex, simple, and the simple fun. I like everything about working at LogMeIn. My favorite part of working at LogMeIn is definitely the atmosphere and the people, the culture. Is okay. So, I guess they're their own independently owned company. That's what actually I was trying to get to the bottom of. I was trying to figure out if Citrix owns them or not, <laughs> or if you know that's now who buys them. Isn't that sort of the issue? Uh, they have uh, they have LogMeIn Central, LogMeIn Hamachi, which some of you may be familiar with. LogMeIn Backup, Millennium, Cubby, uh, LogMeIn Rescue, Bold Chat, a lot of different products, and now they have LastPass. 
I know I have to really make a serious decision here. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. Sean, are you a LastPass user by chance? No. Do you use any password manager? Not at the moment. My brain. That's what you're supposed to say. You're supposed to say my brain. Well, I guess is LastPass off the list now for you, or would this not affect your decision? Well, I've always been a little bit more favored to rolling my own because I trust myself more than them anyway. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be reflecting on what to do about this. All right. Well, moving on, the Obama administration is opting not to force firms to include backdoor decryption beside the behesting of James Comey. But it sounds like they're not going to necessarily persuade lawmakers from doing it. The administration will try to say – will try to persuade companies instead that have moved to encrypt the customer's data to create a way for government to peer into it. They're still going to ask for it, but they're not going to try to do it from like an executive order level. So that seems to be some pretty good news as far as that. However, no real word on what lawmakers are going to do and what might happen there. I don't for some reason feel like this fight's over either. What do you think, Sean? Do you think that we're here, that we're here at the end of the FBI driving for backdoors and encryption? Uh, they're never going to stop driving for backdoors. Yeah. I, I just to me feels like the, the fight has maybe changed. And something that can, a lot of things go, be, go on behind doors that sometimes – you know, we don't have any fathom of any idea of until much, much later. Uh, but it's something we'll keep watching. I mean, this seems like, if nothing else, a good step. And that is a great photo of uh, James Comey right there. All right, this next story is kind of interesting. It made me go, what? Mozilla Firefox, as you probably already know, is dropping support for the Net- Netscape plugin API at the end of 2016. Uh, however, I didn't know. Firefox is going to be keeping Flash around using that same API, apparently. Uh, Mozilla today announced that its intention to remove the Netscape plugin application programming interface plugin support from Firefox by the end of 2016. The company has been working along with other web browser makers to implement functionality like streaming video, advanced graphics, and gaming features that are available only via this plugin to hopefully get them to use something else. However, there's a bit of a problem because our buddy Flash uses this plugin API. Uh, just like uh, Google, though, Mozilla and Microsoft is making an exception for Flash. They say because Adobe Flash is still a common part of the web experience for most users, we will continue to support Flash within Firefox as an exception to the general public pu- uh, plugin policy. Mozilla and Adobe will continue to collaborate to bring improvements to Flash experience on Firefox, including the stability and performance features and a security architecture. You know what? Well, so then doesn't that mean that the plugin API is still there? You're just turning it off? That sounds like it's still ready for exploit. See, I thought you were actually removing that code from the web browser. That was why we were all giving up our stuff. That's why users were being inconvenienced, because you were going to take that whole NP API layer out, and now we were going to be safer. But now it sounds like you're actually keeping it for the worst offender of them all. The one that you just had to disable a couple of weeks ago across all browsers. You remember that? You remember that? That one. I, I swear, I do not. So this is the company. This is the company. Mozilla is the group that screwed over H.264 and made sure that Flash stuck around longer and gave Silverlight a chance to take over sites like Netflix. And then... Years late, retracted on it, and worked with Cisco to get OpenH264 in the browser and still really rolled out a half-assed implementation for the first few updates. This company is now going to be one of the leading companies to make sure we continue to get Flash. I don't get their logic. I don't get, I do not understand. Are they for the open web and open standards? 
or are they for delivering advertising in tiles and making sure the proprietary standards stay along much longer than they need to? I just don't get them anymore. Of course, I'm not a daily Firefox user. I did use Firefox today. Ironically, ironically, I had to use Firefox today because it has the NPAPI plugin architecture, and I could use GNOME's extensions website to update my extensions because I just updated GNOME 3.18. Like, that's the reason I use Firefox now, is because it has that, that plugin API. That's pretty much the only reason I launch it now. Uh, at least it'll still have Flash. Uh, you guys, any, any thoughts on the mumble room before we move on? Nobody wants to come to Firefox's defense. Sigh. All right, well, let's talk about a little bit of a controversy that is brewing in the background. This, is, this to me, I, uh, I find it to be an interesting, like, there's real-world results, then there's benchmark results, and I don't, know where, I don't know where this one falls down. So you may have heard by now that there's two different sources for the processors for Apple's A9 CPU in the iPhone 6S, TSMC, and Samsung. And it turns out Samsung's actually making a smaller chip. However, the larger chip from TSMC seems to be performing a bit better and in some benchmarks getting like an hour more battery life. Uh, in fact, they're looking at the Geekbench 3 battery test and uh, when they ran the battery down to 50%, they discovered that the TSMC iPhone 6S lasted 50 minutes longer than the Samsung version, resulting in nearly 1.5 times difference in battery life. The thing is, as a consumer, you have no idea which one you're going to get. And some people are calling it Chipgate. That's kind of hey funny. Hey guys, this is Austin. Reports have come out that some versions of the iPhone 6S have up to 20% less battery life, but is there actually any difference? It all comes down to the chips inside. Unlike previous iPhones, the 6S can have two different processors. Chipworks took a closer look and found something interesting. Their phys- I don't actually know if this is the first time that uh, Apple's ever done this, actually, to be honest with you. ...different sizes. If you opened up an iPhone 6S, you would find one of two chips. One built by Samsung that measures in at 96mm squared, and another built by TSMC that comes in at 104.5mm squared. The difference comes because they're built on two different processes. So the Samsung's 14 nanometer and the TSMC is 16 nanometer. Now, you would think the 14 nanometer would be the lower-powered, more efficient one. It is not. I don't know why that is. Could be a lot of reasons, actually. Uh, that when you get down to that size, it's kind of ridiculous. Now, uh, the benchmarks ran, and uh, <laughs> and uh, people have been getting all up in arms over this big difference. So I, Apple actually has responded this morning. Uh, and Apple claims that there's only a 2 to 3% variance in real-world battery use. Uh, Apple has quoted, they say, with the Apple-designed A9 chip in your iPhone 6S and iPhone 6S Plus, you are getting the most advanced smartphone chip in the world. Every chip we ship meets Apple's highest standards for providing incredible performance and delivering great battery life, regardless of the iPhone 6S's capacity, color, or model. Certain manufactured lab tests, which run the processors with a continuous heavy workload until the battery depletes, are not representative of real-world usage since they spend an unrealistic amount of time tapping that CPU. Okay, that's not exactly what they said. They said they spend an unrealistic amount of time at the highest CPU performance state. I like my version better. It's a misleading way to measure real-world battery life. Our testing and customer data show that actual battery life of the iPhone 6S and iPhone 6S Plus, even taking into account the variable component differences, vary with just within 2 to 3% of each other. Well... So Apple says, look, in real life, it's not so bad. 
the benchmarks say, but yeah, but there is a very noticeable difference. I'm a bet if I'm betting, I'm betting Apple hedge their bets and all their battery benchmarks that they list on their website and in their keynote. I bet they're all based on the uh, Samsung chip. And then if they ever got hauled into court over like some class action lawsuit or something, they'd just be like, well, look. Our benchmarks say you get this, and if you got the TSMC version, well, congratulations, you got the lucky iPhone. Yours is slightly better than what our benchmarks say you'll get. That tends to be how Apple does those kinds of things, because they definitely know CYA. Mumbleroom, any thoughts on this story at all? Any thoughts on uh, perhaps getting one iPhone and discovering you've got the slow one? That would kind of suck, wouldn't it? Because there's an app now that tells you. I'm just surprised that they went with a, a two different size chips in the first place. It seems like you'd have to have everything nice and settled in there, the entire unit. And it just seems like a design flaw to have two different things and then probably have to try and space out all the rest of the stuff to fit it. Yeah, I mean, it really it means two SKUs of every SKU, right? It means if you have a 64-gig iPhone with a Verizon antenna, there's two versions of that. And then there's two versions of, or whatever. Like, there's two versions of, well, I guess all they have, yeah, they have universal antennas. But you know what I mean? Like, every SKU is going to have the, the, uh, the Samsung chip and the TSMC chip in it. They have, to, they have to account for that variance, I would assume, unless maybe they've built the board in such a way that it can just accommodate either chip. Uh, I tell you, I think there's a lot of reasons why Apple would do this. Number one reason is I'm sure it's not above them to just not give as much money to Samsung and to try, you know, because you got to figure Apple sitting here going, geez, we're making our number one competitor more rich by building our own product that we're competing with them. We should probably give that money to TSMC or somebody else. And so you got to figure that's part of their calculus. The other thing is, it's fun to think about the scale at which Apple now operates when they're building these products. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable to move 13 million of anything in a single weekend. Not to mention, I believe it's today, they're opening up sales in 40 other countries. That's amazing. So they've sold in one weekend more of the iPhone than some Android phones will sell a single model of an entire year, right? Uh, definitely. That's just an amazing number, and they did it in one weekend. And what's, what, but, but if you think about the manufacturing ramp-up that went behind that, the, all the sourcing of all of the raw materials and all the pre-assembly, I bet they have to go with two companies just for the load, just because they're building so many of them. So not only are they, oh, it's actually really brilliant, because not only are they not giving all the profit and proceeds to Samsung, but they're also training another company on how to build this chip for them, so that if they ever have to walk away from one or the other, they've got a secondary supplier. And at the same time, they're dual sourcing supplies, so that way they have probably double the production capacity or near it. It's actually pretty brilliant. Sounds exactly like something Tim Cook would do. But it's a little inconsistent. It's a little unfortunate that you can go in. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. If I went and got an iPhone 6S, because it does. See, here's the thing about that 6S that almost just sells me. is It's got optically stabilized uh, 4K camera on the Plus. And there's other phones out there that do 4K, but usually they don't beat the iPhone's optics. I almost don't even care what's attached to the rest of the lens. If it just records to a, to a large capacity drive and makes it easy to copy the files off there, that almost, if I had the money, that would almost do it. I would almost even consider one of their stupid payment things if they weren't so expensive. 
But the thing is, is if I went and got one and I got the, I got the lemon, uh, I got the bad one. I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want that. So if you are in the market for an iPhone 6s, I would wonder if this doesn't shake itself out, say, after the next batch. Because you figure the, all of the phones that are flooding the market right now were pre-manufactured probably before the launch day. Now, I mean, how else are they going to move that many units? They've probably been building these things for months. That's what the rumors in the supply chain say, too. So you figure once they get another run going, maybe they iron some of these things out. That's happened before, if you recall, if you recall with the previous iPhone releases. So it might be worth waiting if you're thinking about it. But it is an interesting story that uh, it took about three days to get actually, it took till today really to get in the mainstream press. Uh, TechCrunch ran a story about it today. It's interesting to see some of the more technically complicated stories, how long it takes for it to actually bubble up to the top. I started, I started um, reading rumors about this Wednesday and watching the benchmarks in YouTube videos Wednesday. It didn't really feel like much of a news story at the time because it was just a couple of people that were talking about it. But it's interesting to see that it developed over Thursday and now today. So it took about three days total before mainstream press managed to pick it up. It's just kind of an interesting leg time. If it was about an emoji, I think it probably would have been front page news immediately. <laughs> hey, so yesterday, yesterday we talked about mobile payments. And some of you in the, uh, in the mumble room were like, nah, I've never even done mobile payments before. So this was linked to us in the uh, subreddit. Sorry, I didn't grab your name. I meant to. Uh, about mobile pay over at a, uh, I believe it's a Dutch bank. And they talk about the success they've had with their mobile pay. I'll just play a little tiny, tiny bit of their video. I guess it's huge, like massive adoption. Like they launched it and it just blew up over there. Mobile pay makes it even easier to pay for goods using apps. So this bank... When you shop, simply choose mobile pay as your payment method, avoiding the hassle of entering card details. This bank basically opens up like a, you know, a payment system for, pe- for developers to integrate with. And then something else that is probably extremely, extremely common that uh, a lot of us have heard about but don't know exactly how it works. I'm going to play a couple of minutes of this mobile payments in Africa, which has been in place for years. And they're not using NFC or anything like that. Actress Marcy Chege lives in Nairobi and is a busy woman. A mother of three, she's always under time pressure. That's why she uses the mobile money system M-Pesa a name derived from the Swahili word for money. A growing number of stores in Kenya offer the service. At the supermarket checkout, she pays by sending an SMS. I don't have to carry cash. And also when you pay with them, Pesa, there are no charges, there are no extra charges. You just pay and that's it. The exact amount that you bought things for. The service is only free in supermarkets and restaurants. But the charge is never more than a few cents. Mercy uses M-Pesa to pay for her coffee and to transfer money to her relatives in the country safely. So you guys have probably heard of systems like that. Uh, there's a lot out there. But so it's just uh, – and then I was talking to Alan Jude yesterday on, on TechSnap. And he takes his Canadian funny money card with him. And he can walk up to like, – I think he said anything less than $25 – and he can just tap to pay with the card itself because it's got like an NFC chip in it. And then he goes over to Switzerland and he's buying candy from their vending machine using his Canadian funny money card by tapping the thing. Because it's all over the place out there. It's just not here in the U.S. We're just sitting here dragging our knuckles, you guys. We're dragging our knuckles. Uh, to most be fair, fair, we don't have the mobile payment systems up here in Canada. Well, you fancy Alan Jude does. 
<laughs> and most of the time, it's actually anything under a hundred dollars. We can just tap and go. Oh, okay. He might have. I think he said twenty-five or fifty, but yeah, fifty. Yeah, it might might depend on the place. Yeah, mine. Okay, so Billy's. Okay, okay. I see hundred. See, this is what I'm talking about. Why don't we have this in the U.S.? Although the thing is, is I really would. Honestly, there are some things I like about having it on the phone. I like tokenized payment. I think that's better than actually giving the merchant my info. I think that's pretty slick. The other thing is, is I almost never forget my phone, but I do forget my wallet and my card sometimes. Like I took my card out to uh, pay for something the other day upstairs in my office, and I still haven't put it back in my wallet, and I just keep forgetting. And every time I sit down at my desk, I'm like, oh, good thing I didn't need that. So I'm I'm just an, I'm a dope when it comes to that kind of stuff. So when I can use if when I I don't I don't know I don't actually think mobile payments is actually that bad of an idea. The more I the more I think about it, I'm I think if you if the system's implemented correctly, it's not so bad. It's just no worse than a credit card. I just want something to happen. It feels like it's taking forever. Hey, you know what else? Check out Patreon.com/slash today. Boom boom. I just posted another Rover log up there, and we'll have some Rover Rambler stuff coming up there later, which is exclusive. For our patrons around the road trip, patreon.com slash today. No, that is a Tech Talk Today page as a thank you for supporting the entire network. I did it backwards. Whatever. It's something to get. Well, you know what? It's a great URL, patreon.com slash today. You go there. You jump in with any support you can afford per month. And that contribution goes to the infrastructure of the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. That's support staff, equipment, literally infrastructure, things like that. And we definitely could use your support. Patreon.com slash today and allows us to stay lean on sponsors and picky and allows me to say no, which is very nice. Patreon.com slash today. So we had a big debate in the pre-show today. One more TV intro or not? We decided to go one more because there's a sci-fi series that is underrepresented on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. And today that wrong is righted. I have never watched this series. I've tried. I've never been able to get past the first season. In fact, I may have just given away what it is right there. If you're like me, you've probably never been able to get past the first season. But I'm going to watch this intro and see if I can change my mind. Thanks for joining me. Check the calendar for the live shows next week. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash calendar. Coming up later on the stream today is the Linux Action Show. And then on Sunday, if all goes as planned, we have a batch of faux shows, including a play-along episode. I'd love to. I think we're going to be playing Distance, if I recall. And a special Sunday edition of Unfilter. That's right. So a big live show. Uh, so probably starting, I'm guessing, 10, 11, 11-ish JB time going to 3, 4 o'clock on Sunday. So a big batch of live shows coming up this Sunday at jblive.tv, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar for your local times, techtalktoday.reddit.com for content for this show. Thanks for joining me. See you back here next week. It was the dawn of the third age of mankind. Ten years after the Earth-Minbari War, the Babylon Project was a dream given form. Its goal, to prevent another war by creating a place where humans and aliens could work out their differences peacefully. It's a port of call, home away from home for diplomats, hustlers, entrepreneurs, and wanderers. Humans and aliens wrapped in 2,500,000 tons of spinning metal, all alone in the night. It can be a dangerous place, but it's our last best hope for peace. This is the story of the last of the Babylon stations. The year is 2258. The name of the place is Babylon 5.